1729, an author named Jonathan wrote a modest proposal in which he proposed to cure the problem of children of Irish beggars. They should sell those children as a source of nutrition for the upper classes. Jonathan Swift's proposal was satire. However, in response to a second consecutive Oregon legislative session brought to a grinding halt due to Republican state senators walking out of the Capitol and denying quorum, researcher Kristen Eberhard from the Sightline Institute is offering her own modest proposal. Abolish Oregon State Senate. Kristen is with the Sightline Institute. She is here right now to discuss the proposal, not just to change quorum rules, but to get rid of the Oregon State Senate and maybe some other reforms. How are you doing, Kristen? Great. How are you? I am well. First of all, how do you feel about getting rid of Irish children by selling them for nutrition? I think we've moved beyond that. We can do better. We can do better. All right. Your article, Eliminate the Senate. You describe the state's two-chamber body as wasteful and inefficient, although saying both wasteful and inefficient itself might be redundant and wasteful and inefficient and repetitive. I needed an editor. What would Oregon do without a state senate? We might do some things. Why is a state senate worth it? Why get rid of the senate rather than getting rid of the house? So we could go to a single body. We could call it the house or the senate. Or the senate. The the senate. The The, house. The the house. The shouse. But the point is, why have two bodies elected by the same people to do the same thing twice? Why do we have two bodies? I think it's because, what, like a slavery compromise 250 years ago, and then the states looked at it and said, hey, it's good enough for the feds, good enough for us? Like everything in American democracy that doesn't make sense, it was prob- probably a slavery compromise. Why? What's the argument for having two chambers? Just more chances to veto something, more chances to block something, more chances to put fetters upon democracy? So the original argument for the federal Senate was that it was doing something different than the House. The House was the House of the people, and the Senate was essentially the House of the elites. So people elected their House representatives, but the senators were appointed by elites. They were appointed by state legislators or, or governors. And so they were they were different. And, and then also the Senate was representing the states, whereas the House was representing the people. So they were different. They really were different. They were elected in different or appointed in different ways. They represented different things. And so then states just duplicated that and had their senates represent counties. So the House represented the people and the Senate represented the counties. And the kind of underlying reason for this was that that gave rural areas more power. So the House, it it represents all people equally, no matter where they live. The Senate in, in states, if it represented counties, then each tiny county would get one vote and each urban county would get one vote. And so in essence, people in rural areas had more power because there was a Senate. That remains true today. I actually do want to talk about your feelings about the United States Senate. We ought to do... Abolish that, that too. Oh, shoot. The Constitution doesn't allow No it. more Senates. <laughs> no more Senates. Yeah. Did the Greeks have, did the Romans have, did any of the great republics that inspired some of our former government, did they have houses or did they just have Senates? So they had one body, and this was actually, somewhat ironically, the founders saw some of the breakdown that happened in those bodies, and they attributed it to there being two parties. Two parties they saw led to breakdown. And so they tried to create these veto points 
in hopes that it would actually break us up into more parties, more factions. So their instinct was totally right about two parties being a destructive force within a democracy. Um, but unfortunately, they didn't have the tools at the time to actually create a system with more parties. So instead, they just created more veto points, which in a two-party system makes it break down even faster. To get a bill through the legislature, generally, the old lesson is to get it passed, you need five things. You got to go five for five. To stop something, you only need to go one for five, right? You got to get it through the committee of origin. Then you've got to get it through the chamber of origin. Then you got to get the committee on the other side. Then you got it through the chamber. That gives at least four folks speaker, Senate president, uh, committee chair, committee chair, just those individuals. Any of those four individuals can kill it, right? And then you got to get a governor's signature. But also, by the way, you got to get the votes of those chambers, those two committees and those two chamber full votes in order to get it done. It takes a lot. But to stop a bill, all you got to do is one of those things and you can block a bill. Why don't we want some veto points? Why don't we want to be able to block some things? Just people doing crazy stuff. Like you said, we have plenty of ways to block things. We don't need any more. So in most states, the quorum requirement is a majority. So all those veto points that you said, uh, they still apply. You still have to get through all those five things. But all you need is a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate. And Oregon is somewhat unique in requiring a two-thirds quorum. And so now, in addition to there just being a veto point that you have to get past that committee, past that House, you actually have to have two-thirds of the Senate or the House to get through it if the minority decides that they could, they want to walk out. And a little bit of background. Maybe people caught, I mean, this made national news, been in Vox, been a bunch of other places. The uh, distinction of Oregon being a place with its Republican Party undermining democracy in this particular way. Mm -hmm. The background bill is a climate change bill. It's essentially carbon pricing. And you've got the timber industry, which was the biggest industry in Oregon in the earlier days of this state's economy. And we, we record in Oregon. And also is the biggest traditional funder of Republican candidates. And they come out big against trying to pass this piece of legislation. And the way they came out big was say, walk away. Now, if there was a simple majority quorum rule, then the fact that Democrats had a majority of the Senate would just mean, okay, well, as long as we agree, we're going to get this done. And there's disagreements among Democrats. They don't all want to do the exact same thing, to be sure. But now there is this additional veto by Republicans just walking out. Out of the background, what can be done now to address the quorum rules in Oregon as things stand? And I just want to add one thing. One or two of the walkouts have been about climate, but the Republicans have actually walked out five times in the past two years. So they've also walked out about guns, about vaccine They just laws. love walking. And when they walk, <laughs> they, it's out. That's right. Well, they discovered this works. When, you, when you're in the minority, what can you do? Well, you can walk out and you can bring the government of Oregon to a halt by walking out. So let's do it again. Let's do it again. And Let's each time, again. there's got to be some negotiation, something that brings them back to the table. And usually that thing is either maybe some bill they get passed yep. or some other thing that the majority party says, okay, we won't do that now. Exactly. What are some of the things, you remember any of the things that got killed along the way? So they, they did, they weakened the gun bill, they weakened the vaccine. No, no, they actually took the gun bill and the vaccine bill completely off the table. And then they weakened a couple of other bills. 
And then the climate bill, of course, they just completely killed for these two sessions, at least. And when they get together in their caucus and now because they're the minority, they're mostly in pretty Republican safe seats. They're like, hey, the Make America America Great Again crowd is fine with this. Mm -hmm. Let's shut this thing down. By the way, our movement has been saying government sucks for a while now. Mm -hmm. It's been opposed to democracy for a while now. We're not going to have this big a problem at the ballot for doing this. And we're getting stuff out of the deal. Absolutely. So why do they stop? So rather than you say, rather than negotiating, you say, off with all of their heads, including the Democrats in the Senate. They don't have jobs. All those staff have to go away. So actually, one way of doing it would be to make a house that's 90 representatives. So right now we have a house of 60 and a, a So they get to keep their jobs. So, they just well, have to shorten their terms. But it wouldn't necessarily be those. Oh, yeah. Because you want multi-member districts. Yes. So with multi-member, so right now in Oregon, we have a Senate district that elects a senator and two representatives of the House. So if we instead had just one House and each of those districts elected those same, you know, still three people. Three people. Three people. For how many years? Uh, four. Seventeen. Two. Three. <laughs> Infinity. I, Lifetime I, appointments. You love that for the court. No. Um Four. Four is a good, you know, then you, you get to learn the ropes, you get to, to learn what you're doing and not have to immediately turn around and start campaigning again. And the advantage of multi-member districts, going to cover more in another episode, but the basic advantage of multi-member districts is then you can have inter-district factions that each get something for them. So a district might have two Democrats and two Republicans, or you name your party, mm -hmm. but then there'd be somebody who'd say, I'm still invested in this geographic area. I still have somebody that I can go to that gives a darn about me. I might not be in the majority, but my minority is strong enough that there's somebody there that gives a damn about me. Right. So there's lots of benefits, but one of the big ones is that it breaks this two-party zero-sum war that we're in right now. So right now we're in this escalating war where the Republicans are just walking out on the job. And what are the Democrats going to do in response to that? Um, well, they might do nothing or they might escalate in response. If you have three members per district, probably one of those people might not be a Democrat or a Republican. And maybe one of them's a Democrat and one of them's a Republican, but they're representing the same people. So when they get into their caucuses, um, they are actually talking about the same interests, the same people, but from a different worldview. And so they can work together more. They can think together in different ways um, and not just be divided uh, in this divide and, and conquer sort of a way that we are It right mixes things up a little bit as well. Mixes it up. Yep. Now. What is the mechanism by which the votes are cast? If it's multi-member district, is that a ranked choice vote? Is that a star voting system? How do you select these people? So there's lots of different ways. Probably the way that would be most familiar to Americans and Oregonians would be ranked choice voting. So you have three winners, you rank your ballot, and the top three win. And this is why you'd say there is a chance that if the Republicans said this is our best candidate, the Democrats said this is our best candidate. Yes, yeah, sometimes you'd get, you know, there'd be some chance that you get. Now, wait a minute. I got to pause. Help my addled brain understand how I end up with somebody who's not a Democrat and Republican. Give me a, give me a, you know, garden variety case study for like the votes that are cast in this rank choice or star voting system that would ultimately lead to not just three Democrats or, you know, run that through. Sure. So with a ranked ballot, you don't have to have a primary or if, if you do want to, you know, if you've got lots of people running, you can narrow the field of the primary, but it would be an open primary. So right now, Oregon has these closed primaries where you can only vote, you know, in the Democratic primary if you're a Democrat, only in the Republican if you're a Republican. So instead, you'd have an open primary where all Oregonians get to vote, um, narrow the field down, and then on the general ballot, you might see in a, in a three winner district, maybe there's six candidates. 
right? So there might be a couple of candidates who are affiliated with the Democratic Party, but maybe different flavors of Democrats. So you have a further left, you know, new Green Deal type of Democrat. and then Vanilla a more, peppermint. Yeah. <laughs> spicy. <laughs> right, exactly. Less spicy. That's right. Cinnamon. Uh, sour. Yeah. Got the whole. Sour ice cream. Sherbet. Well, sherbet. Sherbet. Yeah. <laughs> And then as a voter, you look at this array, you know, this candy shop of options and you rank them. And what comes out the other end in a Democratic leaning district, it might be a, a more far left Democrat, a more moderate Democrat, and then a more conservative or libertarian or. Help me understand why it wouldn't be like how, I understand how the rank choice and star voting math works, roughly speaking, for like the first choice thing. Right. Yeah. You like drop off and it gets added. Yeah. Why does that mean that, let's say you're in a Democratic-leaning district? So part of the appeal of this is, let's say you're you're a Republican living in a Democratic district, and it's a two-thirds, one-third district. Mm-hmm. And every single time it's going to be a Democrat, and you don't get a Republican one-third of the time. You don't get a Democrat. You don't you don't get a Republican one out right. of a hundred times. You keep voting for that Republican over and over, and you never Just get what you want. real, real hard. And you always have your representative who's a Democrat. And why, if I'm in this two-thirds, one-third district, just run run it through why there wouldn't just be, in that district, four Democrats running and two Republicans running, and then three Democrats win. Give me just an example of how that math breaks down. Yeah. So as long as each candidate, ha- in a three-winner district, as long as you get more than a quarter of the vote, because more than a quarter of the vote is just where it's mathematically impossible that somebody else could win, right? If you've got three candidates, each of them have more than a quarter of the vote. Yes. Then nobody else can can get more than them. So in that uh, that ranked ballot, each candidate who reaches that amount, that one quarter plus of the vote, they get a seat on their first on the first choice ballot, not the second rank, third rank, fourth rank, fewer stars. But okay. if on the first round you get a quarter or more of the vote, boom, you get a seat. And now if you didn't have three of the seats, you know, three people getting more than a quarter. Now you go to the second round and in the second round. Um, anybody who got, uh, you know, the the least popular candidates get eliminated. So in your example, there were, what, four Democrats and two Republicans sure. running. So let's say the least popular Democrat and Republican get eliminated. And now you're trying to decide who's going to get that third seat. And once my vote is counted for a candidate who wins, my vote doesn't count anymore. Right. Okay, right. So, so you, you get one vote. So pop, most popular Democrat, call her Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. call her you name it, okay, mm-hmm. And that person gets the most votes uh, and initially. And then my vote, I vote for Elizabeth Warren. That doesn't count anymore. It goes on to the remaining of the people. And you're saying if there are more than 25% who have their first choice being one of the Republicans, that Republican's going to win. Of course, flip it. If mm-hmm. it's in a Republican district, you got the same dynamic in rural areas all over the right. country. So let's say those two, about a third of the voters were Republican. They sort of split their vote initially between the two Republicans. One Republican got eliminated. Their votes then get to transfer to the other Republican who then wins one of the three seats. I'm realizing this is transmuting into a discussion about multi-member yeah. districts, <laughs> yeah. but this is probably your secret plan. This is my this, secret. You, Although, you say the Senate sucks, but what you really are saying is multi-member districts are dope. Although you have tricked me into talking about the math, which... Uh, You're trying to stay away from. Nobody wants to do that. No. That's not... But this is democracy nerd. We do yeah, nerdy yeah, yeah, stuff. It's okay. okay. It's a safe place for nerdiness. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, one caveat, if you had voted for Elizabeth Warren 
and let's say Elizabeth Warren just crushed He's a very it. strong state legislative candidate. I mean, if she were running for this, she'd be very strong. <laughs> she might not have won Massachusetts like statewide, but she would win a state legislative district in all kinds of multi-member districts around the country. Absolutely. She could. She should be a legislator in, in multiple states. Um, so let's say Elizabeth Warren just crushed the field. She got half the votes and she only needed a quarter of the votes to win. So that additional quarter that she got beyond what she needed, a fraction of those votes actually do transfer to the second choice of Elizabeth Warren. Because otherwise, all of those voters who overvoted... Well, how do you know which ones? All of them. So a fraction of all of her votes. Oh, I see. Yeah. But wait a minute. (laughs) I want to understand this. So there's, let's say there's 100 votes cast. Just keep it easy. Yeah. Okay. And who do you want the other candidates to be other than Elizabeth Warren? Okay, my dog, George Bailey, he'll be the candidate okay. gets the fewest votes because okay. he's not eligible, but he's still okay. going to get on the ballot somehow. All right, he's okay. out. Okay, so you got Elizabeth Warren, George Bailey. How about you, Chris Nebrard? Okay, great. Let's say me because they've already heard my voice. Yep. That, and just keep it easy for who else do you want? You want Donald Trump? You want you want Aleppo? Who do you want? <laughs> let's do Donald Trump. Okay, Donald Trump. And then who's and then give me somebody else. Um, And let's let's put Joe Biden in there. All right. Joe Biden's in the mix. Okay, so first ballot. Let's imagine. And we have five candidates. Or that was at six. I think. I think, I think, six. I think we have six. I mean, we have five human beings plus <laughs> George dog. Bailey, the woke yeah. puggle. All right, he's a wonderful, beautiful dog, and he's here in studio. If on the first ballot, let's say Elizabeth Warren gets first. Now it's downing fictional because she didn't get first right now so far in the in the national voting. But let's but, say she got let's, first in our district. Elizabeth Warren would crush. It. Is Warren Land. <sighs> There is a democracy nerd land, bunch of nerd democracy nerds. In the democracy nerd land, Elizabeth Warren <laughs> a lot of Elizabeth sweeps Warren the votes. field. Okay, so let's say she gets thirty-three percent of the vote. Just you know, thir- well, then she gets thirty-three votes. Let's say thirty-three votes. She didn't get a third of vote. She gets thirty-three votes. Let's say she gets fifty. Fifty, great. Fifty <laughs> votes. That's okay. great. Okay, who gets the second most? Then what happens? So she gets in. Right, and let's say Joe Biden got twenty-six votes, so great. he gets a seat. All right, so Joe Biden gets in, and Elizabeth Warren gets, gets in. in, and now, but nobody else gets in yep. because there's only 24 votes left over. Yep. All right, so then what happens next? Okay, so now let's say that Trump is the only conservative in the field. Wait, are you conservative? I am in favor of democracy. Is, is George Bailey conservative? Let's say George Bailey and Trump are the conservative candidates. George Bailey is a Whig. No, he's not. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's a socialist. Okay, so let's say... He's what did we have? We had, we had 50 for Warren, 26 for Biden. Let's say the rest are split between George Bailey and Trump, basically. Great. So you and I get eliminated. We failed. Darn it. George, you would have been great. <laughs> George Bailey gets eliminated because he had a, a very small number of votes. Yeah. Right. His votes transfer to Trump. Because how do we know they transfer to Trump? Just because let's just say because they're both conservative. Because George Bailey, for some reason, is let's running just, on the conservative, right? And, and so people kind of know this, yeah. and so they rank Trump first, right. and they rank George Bailey second because right. they're not ranking either of us second, right? So all of those conservative voters looked at the ballot and were like, "Okay, Trump number one." So he who might. Else? So Trump might have had ten, and now he's got yeah. sixteen. Like Warren, no Jefferson, no. Yeah, we're okay. Out. George Bailey is our second choice. Got it. So let's say that this is the the simple scenario where. No, wait, this isn't going to work. Some of those Warren voters. No, no. If, this if is Warren what I gets, understand. If Warren gets, if we just made up a scenario where it's not a third of the voters who are Republican. We had a scenario where. It was too few. St- the, you know, so maybe in that, in, that, in that circumstance, 
with if there are 50 votes for Warren and, and 26 votes for Biden, a Republican might not be getting a seat. Yeah. Maybe, though, let's say that you transcend political affiliation. Yeah. OK, let's say you're I can't think of who that is. Let's say you're <laughs> Ralph Nader in 1973. OK. Before he was a third party candidate, just he's an American hero. He's got 92 percent approval rating mm-hmm. or some darn mm-hmm. thing. More popular than the Pope. That's you. Okay. Uh-huh. People aren't sure about your leadership abilities, but they don't think that you're not on their side. Great. So that you're everybody's third choice. Yes. And so in that circumstance, you might be able to win that yes. seat. Yep. Okay, because all the but what happened to Elizabeth Warren, other twenty five votes? So okay. twenty five count for Warren. So so she needed twenty six to win a seat. Okay, twenty six. So she had twenty four left over. Twenty four left over. Um and so it is the fraction that she was over. So it's 20, it's 50, 24 divided by 50. So let's just say it's roughly half. Got it. So each of her voters, yep. half of a vote is left over to transfer to somebody else. So let's say oh. all of her voters ranked me as their second choice. So now I get 12 votes. And a computer does this. Like and you a computer just, does you just, this. You just yeah. do a math problem right. and you figure, and it becomes sort of a point system, right. and you get a certain number of points because a certain number of people ranked you a certain number of stars right. or rankings right. for Elizabeth Warren. And the, the big idea is just that you're finding a way to make sure that the people who go to Salem for your district represent the variety of voters in your district. So the, the hope is that at the end of the day, if it was this massively left-leaning district, that Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and me would go to represent those people. Yeah. And so so if you're kind of a conservative-leaning person, and, and I was apparently a, a transcendent, you know, yeah. c- kind you're of— You're the Republican Ralph Nader. Right. That, that you at least have me now, whereas without that three-winner district, you would only had Elizabeth Warren. Year after year, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. And, and she's your only representative. Now— You've got me, and I have a vote in the in the house. And if we use, we could run another several clumsy simulations. But if we did presidential candidates, one could imagine that. And you think this also with multi-member districts and ranked choice voting or star voting, this would also allow for non-doctrinaire folks to have a chance, particularly because if there were somebody who was a lot of people's second or third choice, mm-hmm. then that person would actually have a chance. Yeah, and I just want to distinguish single winner races from multi-winner races. So when we're talking about this sort of multi-winner district, a three-winner district, so that's for the legislature. But if you're electing a president or a mayor, there's only one winner. And so you can still use a ranked choice ballot or a star ballot. And it will still allow some non-doctrinaire candidates to run. It will still make sure that the winner is broadly popular, but you're still only electing one person. So you don't get this like, oh, you get to have Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Kristen Eberhard. You're ultimately only going to have one person, but they're going to be more broadly popular. One other advantage, I might be stealing a line, or maybe this isn't as much of an advantage as I would think about, is I think about the town hall meeting. And right now, the town hall meeting, you have your one representative. And you go and, you know, I serve in the legislature, and so would come in a Democratic district, but not an arch-Democratic district necessarily. And people come and say, I want to do something about immigrants. And depending on how they ask the question, I might think they meant services, mm-hmm. right? Or I might, might think they meant, I don't know, building a wall. Uh-huh. And then if they came, generally speaking, across your district in Oregon, after exactly just (laughs) we don't want between Gresham and Portland, there needs to be a wall for somebody. I don't know. (laughs) And eventually people would know where I was coming from and they might not go to the town hall meeting anymore. Mm -hmm. But one could imagine town hall meetings, either with all of the members, multi flavors, peppermint and vanilla Mm -hmm. or multiple town hall meetings. We would actually have a chance to interact with the government. Why does that matter, though? 
Why does it matter for yeah. people to be able to interact with the government? Yeah. It matters for whether people believe in democracy and whether they believe that the government is actually representing them and taking action on their behalf. So when people stop believing that, they stop being engaged, they stop voting, and they stop actually supporting institutions, which brings us back to the Republican walkout. So part of what is enabling the Republicans to just walk out on their job is if enough people feel like, eh, democracy, it's not working anyway, it's not representing me anyway, so I'm not really that mad at my representative for walking out and not doing their job. So to have a functioning healthy, robust democracy, people have to believe that it is working well enough that they want their legislator to show up and do their job. And once people stop believing in it, then they stop holding their legislators accountable to show up. And that is what's happening in Oregon right now. Let's talk about the value of actually having just a single chamber rather than two. Nebraska has one chamber. Mm -hmm. Have we seen any benefit of that? Have we seen any way to, and very often connecting process decisions two policy results is very hard because we don't have a law of large numbers and it's so hard to isolate the variables. I get that. But is there any indication you have, even just fake indication, that Nebraska's system has had some benefit? Uh, well, I can say that people love it and they didn't go back. So they've been doing it for 100 years and it just makes things run more smoothly. You don't have as many veto, veto points. You elect your representative, they vote on things and it passes or it doesn't pass. It doesn't have to get voted on twice. Originally. Senators were picked not by the people, yes? Mm -hmm. Senators were picked essentially like by a board of directors. So you'd, you'd elect some folks, and then that set of folks would select the senators. Do I have that roughly right? So in the U.S. Senate, it was uh, states were allowed to pick their uh, senators, and states did that in different ways. Sometimes it was the legislature who picked Sometimes the senator. Sometimes the governor maybe just Sometimes picked Sometimes it was somebody. just the governor He's just like, picked somebody. Buddy. Right, exactly. Any value, as I've been thinking about alternative systems for senators— have we lost anything because we elect senators directly rather than having them sent by somebody? So at the federal level, the original idea was this is a different body. It's doing something different. And so I, I do think it's, it's not crazy to think we should appoint somebody who you personally have seen their work, you know, whereas voters don't necessarily know how how people really work once they're inside the legislature. So the idea that you have somebody who actually knows kind of the insider baseball and has seen this person at work and is trying to send somebody who actually knows how to get things done, that's not on its face a completely crazy idea. So the idea that maybe the Senate was made up of people, you know, who, who weren't sort of broadly popular, maybe they weren't good looking, they weren't great orators, but they knew how to get stuff done. And, and the people inside the state knew who knew how to get stuff done. Like, in theory, maybe that's a good idea, that your house is made up of people who are good-looking and great orators, and your Senate is made up of people who know how to get stuff done. That wasn't how it played out. And how did so, it play out? Just cronyism. Cronyism. And, and elitist, right? Like Rob Blagojevich picks the U.S. senator and then goes to prison and then Trump lets him out. Yes. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. So people who had money, people who, who were from the right families, people who had the right connections, they were the ones who got to be senators. And in the House, you actually could have a shot if you were a nobody, you know, if, if you didn't come from the right family, if you didn't come from money, you could at least have a shot at winning an election. And in the Senate, you really didn't have a shot. So we changed that. We started electing our senators, which is a good thing that, it, you know, voters had more of a say. But then it's a bad thing for our system to have this veto point. What lessons do you think the state Republican Party in Oregon learned from any of the five walkouts that manifested that they performed? 
They learned it works. I mean, it, for what they are trying to do in our current environment, it was a wild success for them. So all they're trying to do is block. They're not trying to get stuff passed. They're not trying to solve problems. They're not trying to get things done. They just have to block the things that the Democrats are trying to solve. And it worked. They got to walk out. For many of them, their um, constituents think that that was great, you know, that government isn't working. And so the Republicans are, are putting up a stand that they, they're not going to sit there and let government actually try and get things done. They're going to walk out and stop it from getting anything done. And um, I think the fact that they have walked out five times in two years, whereas in the past 100 years there had been one walkout before that, shows how wildly it's successful they have. It's just become a move. Yeah, it's now like it's the the tool in their toolbox. It's like They're the like, filibuster. It, right. it's like a filibuster in the Senate, which became vastly exactly. overused and misused. We say, hey, here's a tool. And then, well, I guess that's how we do it. So we've got a filibuster. And this is now the future filibuster in Oregon. And by the way, depending on quorum rules in other states, it might not stop at Oregon. Yeah, exactly. The, the quorum rule is the state's version of the filibuster. If you can't actually win elections and you can't pass laws, at least you can walk out. Real politic. Do you think that this activity in this short legislative session and in previous sessions in an election year helps or hurts Republicans when they are at the ballot? So there are two swing districts that Republicans are in um, where it possibly could hurt them. One of those Republicans stayed and didn't walk out because he wants to be able to tell his constituents that he stayed to do his job. Um, possibly, we'll see how that goes in the election. But in the other nine districts are very solidly safe Republican districts, and very likely those voters will feel like their representatives did the right thing in walking out because they were blocking something that those voters didn't believe in. There are a couple of ballot initiatives right now in November. What are they? Um, one would stop senators or, or representatives who have missed 10 floor sessions from running again. So the punishment would be, okay, you get to finish out your session, but you can't run again. Uh, the other one would impose fines, fees, uh, withhold their salary um, if they miss too many floor sessions. What about a ballot initiative to do your thing? My thing. Eliminate the Senate. Yeah, eliminate the Senate. Multi-member yeah. districts. Absolutely. Eliminate the Senate. Multi-member districts. Or are you just Jonathan Swift and you want to eat Irish children? I do not want to eat Irish children. Neither Jonathan Swift. I think that our two-party system is eating the Irish children, and we mm. should stop it. Do you think this modest proposal is a serious proposal? I realize that this is a stretch, but I do think that the more that our democracy starts to break down in this way, that, that you know, we are seeing the federal dysfunction spread to the state. So the filibuster has been going on at the federal level and, and stopping progress for many years now. And now, essentially, we have seen it spread to Oregon. As more and more dysfunction spreads, I think people will be more open to ideas that would change the system as they see that the system is not working. If you had your system, if you had a unicameral legislature, just one camera, no more ca – everybody has a camera. <laughs> unicameral legislature, 90 seats, three uh, – but 30 districts, three seats per district. Depending on the quorum rules, you could still have the same thing, right? You could still just have the people, even though they're in different districts around the state, say, hey, we're, we don't feel like we're getting a say enough. At, we're, we're leaving. We have veto power over anything that happens. So technically you could still have a walkout. But the thing is that those three-member districts – change the dynamics in a way that I don't think the the incentives would be the same for the walkouts. Why not? And I base this on Illinois had three member districts for 100 years. 
and there are living senators and representatives who operated in that system who will tell you it changed the way that the legislature worked. It made things idea-based. It made things fluid. It made things solution-based instead of making it this um, you're with us or against us. And, and why did Illinois dump their system? Because of Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> so they, uh, they decided they wanted to save money by reducing the size of the legislature. And so they looked around and said, hey, we've got three people per district. We could just reduce it to one person per district and and save those salaries. And those Breaking were, your heart in the process. Breaking my heart. And those reformers didn't really think about the way in which that was going to change the way that the legislature worked. And how did they elect them there? How did those three get selected? So Illinois? they used something called a cumulative ballot where every voter had three votes and you could put all three of your votes on one person if you really felt strongly about them or you could put one vote each on three different candidates, or you could do two on one and one on the other. It's um, like voting on butcher paper with stickers at a retreat. Exactly. It's a sticker. Cumulative voting is sticker voting. Yeah. And they got rid What year? When did they get rid of their sticker voting? Uh, it was in the 1970s. Those jerks. Or 80, early 80s, I Who think. Who did it? Was it one party that did it? Was it one governor that did it? Who did it? it was Who a- is the villain here? <laughs> I th- it was eating the Irish oh, children. I'm sorry. I think it was the people. I think it was a ballot initiative. You know, that oh. was sold, save money. It was sold to save money. But the same time, it sounds like the same time frame, by the way, that they were uh, passing uh, Proposition 13 in California. Yes. That money. that the much of the modern ascendancy of what we now know yeah. as the modern right wing was happening in the early 1970s. Yeah. We think of 1973 as a high water mark for you know taking out Nixon. But yeah. you viewed another way. It was a transformation. The beginnings, the seeds of a transformation of American power over the next several decades. Yeah. Yeah. And it was at a time when uh, we now just increasingly have this sorting geographically, which is part of what you're seeing with this Republican walkout is that they represent an area that is pretty much all Republican. And so their voters don't have a lot of interaction with other places. And um, and so they can sort of be a a rock, a party onto itself. Mm -hmm. In Illinois, what happened was you actually had Republicans from urban areas. You had Democrats from rural areas. And so when they got together in their caucuses, you actually had this left-leaning rural perspective. And you actually had this right-leaning urban perspective. And so it wasn't so clean-cut. There wasn't such a an easy divide that you could say, oh, we're, we're just going to walk out because you actually had interconnections. And I'll use some policy examples from this very state. And I know we use Oregon examples because it's because we got a bunch of democracy nerds and because it's a close, easy set of examples to use. But if you look at statewide land use planning at public beaches, if you look at some of the watershed policy decisions that were also passed in the 1970s in Oregon, this happened in an era where there were rural Democrats Mm -hmm. and urban Republicans. So things were sort of shaken up. You never knew where the coalition was going to come from. You know, you could have odd bedfellows and do interesting things in the bed. And right. I could say that differently. You could have odd bedfellows and do interesting things. You could have surprising allies and do, you know, surprising things. Absolutely. And right now, uh, you know, let's say specifically about the climate bill, which was the, you know, one of the causes of, of two of the walkouts. You actually have people living in rural Oregon who are feeling the effects of climate change. So you actually have farm workers who are um, seeing these fires. You have people working in uh, the, you know, in fisheries or in timber who are seeing the effects of the lack of water and, and too many fires. And they might actually want Oregon to take some action about that, but their voices get drowned out in that they, they only have one representative. That representative is Republican. The Republican Party is against taking action on climate change. Boom. There's there's no 
nuance to actually give voice to those people who are living in rural Oregon and feeling the effects of climate change and would support action. With this multi-member district, there would be somebody representing those people from rural Oregon and giving voice to the rural concerns about climate change. And it also might embolden those activists in different geographic areas that now are cowed and don't say anything, which might impact the viewpoints of their neighbors. And things might also shake up in our own brains, that partisanship can be one way of doing math and dividing a chamber, but it can also impact our own synapses and how we start organizing ourselves in the world. Yeah. And you you mentioned Timber Unity um, as one of the sort of drivers of the walkout. I didn't plug their name. Sorry. You, you, mentioned, you, you say anything you want. I just did. I did not say their name. I'm glad you said their name. You mentioned the timber industry in yeah. Oregon. And I think this is also so important to note. The timber industry in Oregon is not a monolith. There are people within the timber industry who recognize the challenges of climate change and who want to do things about it. And Trees burn up when it gets hot. Trees burn up. If you, if you own land with trees, you care about it burning up. You care about climate change. And so the two-party system makes it seem like timber is only against climate change, that timber is only for the Republican Party. And that's not true. And if you had three representatives from a district, one of those might be representing the timber interests that actually want to take action on climate change. I want to ask about campaign finance and the link here. When I looked at the issues they walked out on, there was a tax reform issue. There was a uh, and there was the timber issues. It looked like there was a pretty close connection, not just to the things that had the greatest supporter opposition among Republican voters, but the things that had the most supporter opposition among Republican donors, funders, big contributor lobbyist types. Oregon currently is one of the few states without any limits on statewide campaign contributions. Senate Republicans get a bunch of corporate funding. Eleven senators representing 36 percent of the state's population uh, can afford. You know, they get as long as they keep those set of contributors happy and they can still send mail pieces to send conservative messages to rural voters. They're still going to get sent back. Uh, how would you describe the efforts there are right now, some efforts to pass campaign finance reform in Oregon during the short session, during the full session last time? How would you describe those efforts? So I just start by saying Oregon is such an interesting case study, right? So we, we're seeing money in politics be a problem across the country. And it's really a problem in Oregon because we are one of only five states with no campaign contribution limits. So I would describe the campaign finance reform efforts in Salem right now to be common sense, overdue, yeah. just baseline. Why not <laughs> starting? Maybe something will happen. Let's let, let's just do the the bare minimum of not letting somebody write a check for an infinite amount of money. Just the bare minimum that most other states are doing. One proposal is multi-member unicameral legislatures. Another one is screw politicians. Let's not even have them. Let's do sortition. Let's have citizen assemblies, just select juries for policymaking. Why have people go out and raise money and try to build power and do it based on, you know, who's, as you said, good looking and eloquent and articulate, and instead just have human beings make the policy? What say you, Chris Neberhardt? Uh, I think that was me that you were quoting there. Oh, all right. Uh, so, yeah, you know, so there's Aristotle said that uh, elections are for aristocracies or oligarchies and sortition or randomly selecting citizens to serve is for democracies. So if you keep having elections and your elections are dominated by money, you're going to keep electing people who are answering to money. 
Whereas if you just get random citizens to get informed about a topic and do what and, and talk to their fellow citizens about the topic, have access to experts so that they can learn about it, but then bring their own life experience to the discussion. They're not going to have to get reelected. They're not going to have to raise money. They're not you know, sitting in a room t calling up donors who can write big checks for them. They're just there being themselves, representing themselves in their community. And you, it can make a, a very big difference compared to what we have now. So you started out by saying we should ban the Senate. Now you're saying we should ban the House as well. Not 90 districts, but either 180 or zero. So I'm not saying let's get rid of uh, representative democracy, but maybe we should try using regular citizens and giving them some power in some circumstances. So one possibility is in something where the legislators say just can't take action because they're self-interested. For example, in reforming the way that they get elected. Nobody's going to reform the way that they got elected if they won an election in that way. So maybe you get... Legislative salaries. I'll tell legislative you, one, salaries, way, one absolutely. way to get sortition passed, honestly, is if you had one of your first moves, go to legislature. You don't have to decide your salary. Yep. Or, a lot of people in the West, a lot of legislatures in the West have low salaries. No legislator wants to go out and campaign on, I'm going to increase my own salary and those of my buddies. But that also means that not everybody can serve because only people who either have no better option or who don't need the money can run and serve. But if you had a citizen group, then people could trust what that group was saying. This might be the no in the tent to get sortition rocking there. And the city of Milwaukee just did that. They uh, were, were faced with this decision. Wisconsin of, or Oregon? Oregon. Okay. <laughs> they were faced with this decision and they said, you know, this is a no win for us. We raise our salary. People think that we're corrupt. So they gave it to a citizen assembly said, what do you think we should do? Amen. Yeah. I'm going to try to act critical. Okay. But I'm totally mobbed up in favor of sortition. <laughs> Let me say this. It might sound crazy. Like, Having a citizen assembly, a jury, a lottery selection for power instead of elections might sound crazy, but I want to put this alternative. Imagine this world, that there is a person or maybe a company who is on trial and they're on trial for polluting a bunch of water. And we've got to select the group of people who's going to decide whether that company is going to be held accountable for polluting that water. The questions of fact, did they actually pollute the water? The questions of responsibility linked to that. And then the questions of money for should they have to pay to clean up the water? And let's say we were going to select that group of people by having a vote and say, and by the way, you can raise money for that vote and their unlimited campaign contributions that can go to not you, but to a super PAC to select the members of the body who are going to decide that set of questions of fact, the responsibility, and the financial implications thereof. I would argue that system sounds even more absurd than anything else we've talked about today. Yeah, that's that's a crazy system. Who would do that? Nobody would do, <laughs> Nobody that. Would do that. Maybe the chemical <laughs> that's company. Just a, that's just silly, Jefferson. Like, why, why would you even make up such a thing where people are raising money from the very industry that they are supposed to be regulating? It would never happen. Yeah. It could never happen. Also, want to give a shout out to Lynn Davis from Healthy Democracy, a previous guest on the show who they work on and care about this stuff. This conversation will make them very happy. Any other examples where you think a citizen's assembly? could weigh in. We talked about uh, process rules and another would be legislative or, you know, elected official pay. Any other examples you think could be early moves in the direction of sortition and direction of citizen assemblies and juries? Um, so I think another, so I think talking about should we move to multi-member districts? Should we eliminate the Senate? Those are questions that uh, 
a citizen assembly could look at and think about in a way that's independent from the people who are already within that system. I think another a place that you could use citizen assemblies is just directional agenda setting, right? So if, if the legislature says, look, we're in the short session, there's only so many things that we can pass right now. And we're not motivated to pass the ones that are going to cause the Republicans to walk out. If you had a citizen assembly assemble and say, you know what, this is the most important thing that you need to work on this session. And if that citizen assembly said climate change, that there would then be more um, public pressure that, hey, citizens have spoken and they said that this is an important issue. You guys need to keep your butts at the table until you figure it out. Any difference between proportional representation and multi-member districts? Is that Venn diagram a full eclipse or is there any sort of slivers at the edge? So proportional representation just means a way of making sure that all voters get equal representation in the legislature. Multi-member districts is a tactic for implementing that vision. What's another tactic for implementing proportional representation that is not multi-member districts? <laughs> you have to have multi-winner districts in order to get proportional results. Can you have a multi-member district system that is not lead to proportional representation? Yes. How? Um, so actually, many American states used to do this, and many Oregon cities still do this. They have a multi-winner election, but they use what's called block voting. So the block voting is actually even worse than single-winner districts. It allows uh, 100% of the seats to go to one group of voters. So the minority voters have zero seats. And the way that that works is, say there's three seats, everybody gets three votes. And so people who are in the majority elect all three of, you know, they elect their entire slate. People in the minority get zero people from their slate. All this stuff is my jam. It's getting more and more my jam. And, and you're one of the reasons. <laughs> but as we see what's happened with the big geographic sort, so that now, you mentioned early, early 1970s, in 1973, between 1973 and, I don't know, uh, some number of years ago when this study was done, we became slightly more ethnically diverse. I think we were like 4% more likely to live, live in the same neighborhood as someone with a different ethnic background. But you were, I think, 48% less likely to live in the same neighborhood with someone with whom you disagreed politically. Mm. We'd sort it up. And you see that now also we've had an ideological sort where there used to be genuinely liberal and genuinely conservative Republicans and genuinely liberal and genuinely like racist conservative Democrats. And now there's been a significant sort in the parties as well. And now the two party system is seeming dumber and dumber. And I say that as someone who has participated in the current political system and am an enthusiast in it. But it seems like there are more and more people. Is it fair to say that your crazy ideas, your modest proposals, are they finding more purchase now as people see the challenges with our current system? Absolutely. I think people are... See so you mentioned the 1970s and this mixing of the parties. So one way of thinking of that is that there was actually a four-party system. So you had these hidden four parties, right? So within the Democratic Party, there were liberals and conservatives. And within the Republican Party, there were liberals and conservatives. And so those parties were sort of mediating two parties within themselves. And um, the result of that was that the politics were a little more fluid as you could sort of talk to people who had a different view than you, but the same party label as you. Now that has sorted itself into two true parties where they 
kind of have nothing in common with yeah. people across the aisle. They in fact, they almost define their objectives as, as contra to the other yeah. the objectives of the other entity. And so, uh, so going back to this veto points, those veto points were designed for a system where people were more fluid and could work together. And so the veto points slowed it down, but they didn't completely stop progress. In a two, truly sorted two-party system, those veto points just allow one party to completely obstruct the other party. So the, the minority party to completely obstruct all progress and to be incentivized to obstruct all progress. So it's not just like, oh, there's a stick. You could use it if you wanted. It's like if you don't pick up that stick and beat the other party with it, your voters will vote you out because that's what they And you had this you. stick and the, your job was to beat these people up exactly, with it and you, and you didn't, didn't even use it. the stick. You're out. So, you know. One way of looking at the Republican walkout is to say they suddenly realized there was this stick available that the Constitution said you can obstruct all progress if you walk out. And now it's almost like they have to use it because that is their job is to stop progress. I really do. I mean, this we poke fun a little bit at this stuff, but I really I look back at 100 years ago at the progressive era. And that was not about a single political party. That was trying to do broad. In fact, much of it was embedded in the Republican Party of the time. And it was trying to do broad and deep transformation in the American system. I think that's where we're at now. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're in the midst of it happening. I, I think we're in the midst of it being so darn obvious that it needs to happen. Maybe we need a new word, but I think that's a big thing. And I do think it starts with massive or at least significant process reform so we can start having the conversations that yield the decisions we need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, this sort of change happens, hard change happens when people are demanding it and when legislators actually see that there is a path for them within that change. So the barrier to change is always that legislators, you know, the two parties look at a multi-party system and they say, well, I'm losing under that system because I can no longer dominate. You know, maybe the Green Party is going to take some of my seats or maybe the Libertarian Party is going to take some of my seats. And so I don't want that. And so the question is, are we to a point where there's so much pressure on them like this part this isn't working we cannot have people just walking out on the job we can't have things grinding to a halt we have to do something different and where the legislators can look and say you know what i too am sick of of not being able to get anything done of feeling like i'm locked out of power or of feeling like my only option is to walk out or of feeling like i worked for 10 years on this climate bill and then 11 people can walk out and kill it i want it to be done a different way and this multi-party system, you know, if it means that we can actually get things done and, and I can pass a climate bill, I'm for it. What's a pathway to multi-member districts somewhere in the country or here? If we're talking real politics, we're talking not only democracy, but also politics. And how do we move in the direction of meaningful process reforms? What's a step to take? So what we've seen with ranked choice voting is that, and again, ranked choice voting is one way of getting to proportional representation, but single winner ranked choice voting is not itself proportional. Um, but what we've seen with ranked choice voting is that you do it in a city first, and then people see how well it works, and then they bring it to the state level. For instance, give us an example so of that trajectory. Portland, Maine had been doing ranked choice voting for 10 years. And then they had this governor who won with less than a majority. And a lot of Mainers were pretty upset about it. And they were like, hey, wait a second, what's this thing that Portland's been doing? Let's try that. And they had 10 years of experience of, of people in their midst using a ranked ballot and loving it. And they said, yeah, we're going to bring this to the state level. And so they fought hard to uh, against the legislature. The legislature kept trying to stop them. 
and um, they kept pushing forward. And now Maine has uh, conducted an election, a statewide election with a ranked ballot. So city by city. And then eventually wait for that moment when everybody's like, this really is broken. Wow, mm-hmm. the state Senate keeps walking out. Now is the time we got to use this multi-member thing. So right now, in fact, the way about measure might get passed is if there already were, let's say, three city councils in the state of Oregon who were doing multi-member districts. Right now, the city of Portland, there's significant discussion about changing how the city council is elected. You want member, uh, you want multi-member districts for the city of Portland. I do, yeah. Any uh- traction? You know, there's there's definitely some interest. So people are most interested in changing the commissioner form of government. Um, but in that conversation is also a conversation about how do we get better representation? Um, we've had in 100 years, we've only had one woman of color elected to the council. We've only had one person east of 82nd. How do we make the council look more like the people that it represents? And I think multi-member districts is a way to go. Because just because you carve them up geographically, unless you have significant geographic segregation, you could end up with lots of single-member districts that kept just sending whiteies in. Oh, yeah. In terms of racial representation in Portland, there so some Voting Rights Act cases have used single-winner districts as a remedy if you can draw a district around the people of color. So if there is a area of town where it's majority African-American, you draw a line around them and then they get to elect their one African-American counselor and you, you, you call it you call it quits. That's not the case in Portland. Portland does not have any district that's majority. Particularly now, in, in many cities across the country, similarly, when you have cycles of gentrification and displacement, Absolutely. there becomes this challenge. Uh oh, what about the diaspora of this community that used to yep. be there? There still might be a way for them to congeal if they were a large but multi member district. Yep. So you look at Portland and, you know, the, the, the areas that have gotten gentrified, so they're, no lo- they're not majority people of color. So uh, a a better solution that many voting rights, there's actually just a recent Voting Rights Act case in Michigan and one in Palm Springs, California, that looked around and said, you know what, there's lots of people of color here, but they don't all live in one neighborhood. So instead of trying to draw a line around them, we're just going to give them equal chance to elect somebody in a district, in a a multi-winner district. Um, So in Portland, you could not draw a single winner district that would be majority people of color. But you could absolutely draw a three-winner district where a third of the people are people East of Portland, color. easy. Easy. And so if that is the thing that people are voting on is I want to elect a person of color and they, and they are a third of the voters, boom, they get one out of the three seats in their district. How do you respond to a critique that your proposal is just rigging democracy in another way? The Republicans walk out and you say, fine, get rid of the whole chamber. So proportional representation isn't rigging democracy. It's making a democracy work. If, if the idea of democracy is that everybody has a vote, everybody matters equally, everybody's voice should be heard equally, everybody should have a choice, proportional representation does that. Single winner districts don't. Which is a bigger deal to try to have democracy work a little bit better, dealing with the money or dealing with the district shapes and the number of members there? You have to do both. So in Oregon, where you've got you've got both problems, right? So you have unlimited campaign contributions, which shapes who can run and who can win and the way that what they have to think about as they're governing. And then you have this crazy quorum requirement that means you can't get anything done unless you win two thirds of the legislature. You have to fix them both. And they go hand in hand. So once you have uh, multi-winner districts, that opens the door to people who maybe don't have access to that much money, but they can win a third of the votes in that district. And then once you start tamping down on that big money, then people are able to compete even if they can't get a $100,000 check. 
Ezra Klein just published his book, Going After Polarization. I quibble with the word because I don't see poles. To me, I see significant asymmetry. For instance, even just here in Oregon, as we've been probably overusing it as an example in this show, there hasn't been the same conduct. I think one time in the last hundred years, the Democratic Party did it. The Republicans have done it five times, but in the last two years, it is not an asymmetrical set of poles that we face in American democracy. But nonetheless, that's the term that most people are using. How does polarization interface with multi-member districts and with abolishing a Senate or having unicameral legislatures? Maybe we covered it, but anything mm -hmm. else on that? Yeah. So in our current system, we have uh, these two parties that are now kind of aligned. All of your identities line up. There's no crossover geographically or religiously um, with the other party. And it means that those two parties have a hard, they just can't work together. Um, and in particular, one of those parties has decided that its best tactic is to either blow up the system, like we saw with the state Republicans mm -hmm. walking out, or to continue to rig the system, as we see with other state Republicans who are trying to uh, suppress the vote or um, stop voter turnout in order to keep themselves in power. Once you have that sort of downward spiral, that you have a significant portion of your politics who are actually anti the institution of democracy, who, who feel that their best strategy is not to play by the rules, but to walk out on the rules. It's a downward spiral for democracy, because what does the other side do now? You know, what are the Democrats supposed to do in, in Oregon to sort of punish those Republicans or to stop them from walking out again? There's, there's only so many tools at their disposal if they continue to play within the rules and believe that democracy works. So I think that actually one of the keys to change is the center right. So right now, you know, it looks like a hopeless cause on the right. You know, we've got these Republicans who can't even stay in, in Salem and do their job. How are you supposed to negotiate with them to make democracy work better through proportional representation? But I think that there is a contingency on the center right that might right now be looking at this and saying, OK, the Republican Party is winning for now. But long term, having democracy break down is not in our interest. We don't actually want chaos. We don't want a civil war. We don't want to be you know, rewriting the Constitution. We want this system to work and it can't work the way that we're going. So how are we going to make it work? And that they might come around to seeing a way to make it work is to have more parties and to have a truly center-right party and to let the Trump party be its own thing. Have there be a populist or nationalist party and it'll get 10% of the vote or 15% of the vote, but it won't be in charge of the government. And that there will be a center-right party that gets 20% or 25% and there will be a center-left party and there will be a green party and that they will all have to work together. None of them will be will win by blowing up the other ones. Kristen Eberhardt, Silent Institute. You, I believe, are a proud democracy nerd, and we are honored to have you. Thank you. Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis, and thanks also to Dan Curtis at Danny C on SoundCloud for the music and to Cat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We are at the beginning of this. Please subscribe and give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word. You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. And thank you, democracy. <laughs>